Section 10 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 48. The Stamp Act. That the colonies were not well understood in England was no fault of the colonists. There was at that time an hour in England, a man, specially authorized to speak on behalf of the colony of Pennsylvania, and indirectly entitled, as he was admirably qualified, to represent the other colonies. At that time, Benjamin Franklin was the most distinguished American living, and the most distinguished American who had ever lived. It was not his first visit to England. He had crossed the Atlantic forty years before, when he was a youth of eighteen, eager to set up for himself as a master printer and anxious to obtain the materials for his trade in the old country. In those eighteen years he had learned many things. He had learned how to print. He had learned how to bear poverty with courage and ambition with patience. He could never remember a time when he was unable to read. But he had learned how to read with inexhaustible pleasure and unfailing profit, and he had learned how to write. When he was seventeen, he had run away from his birthplace, Boston, and the home of an ill-tempered brother, and made his way as best he might to Philadelphia. As he tramped into the city with a loaf under each arm for provender, a young woman, leaning in a doorway, laughed at the singular figure. Six years later, she married Franklin, who in the interval had been a journeyman printer in Philadelphia, a journeyman printer in London, and had at last been able to set up for himself in Philadelphia. From 1729, the story of Franklin's life is the story of a steady and splendid advance in popularity and wealth, and in the greater gifts of knowledge, wisdom, and humanity. He published a newspaper, the Philadelphia Gazette. He disseminated frugality, thrift, industry, and the cheerful virtues in poor Richard's almanac. He was the benefactor and the blessing of the city of his adoption. He founded her famous library. He devoted the results of his scientific studies to her comfort, welfare, and comeliness. He maintained her defenses as a military engineer, and was prepared to serve her gallantly in the field against the Indians as a colonel of militia of his own raising. No man ever lived a fuller life, or did so many things with more indomitable zeal or more honorable thoroughness. The colony of Pennsylvania was very proud of her illustrious citizen, and delighted to do him honor. When he visited England for the second time in 1757, he was the agent for the General Assembly of Pennsylvania. He was deputy postmaster general for the British colonies. He was famous throughout the civilized world for his discovery of the identity of lightning with the electric fluid. He was in London for the third time when Rockingham took office. He had lived nearly sixty years of a crowded, memorable, admirable life. He was loaded with laurels, ripe in the learning of books and the learning of the book of the world. Even he, whom few things surprised or took unawares, would have been surprised if he could have been told that the life he had lived was eventless, bloodless, purposeless, 
in comparison with the life he had yet to live and that all he had done for his country was but as dust in the balance when weighed against the work he was yet to do for her he was standing on the threshold of his new career in the year when edmund burke entered parliament the rockingham administration did its best to undo the folly of grenville's government after long debates in both houses after examination of franklin at the bar of the commons after the strength and acumen of mansfield had been employed to sustain the prerogative against the colonies and the voice of burke had championed the colonies against the prerogative after grenville had defended himself with shrewdness and pitt had added to the splendor of his fame the stamp act was formally repealed unhappily the new ministry was only permitted to do good by halves the same session that repealed the stamp act promulgated the declaratory act asserting the full power of the king on the advice of parliament to make laws binding the american colonies in all cases whatsoever this desperate attempt to assert what the repeal of the stamp act virtually surrendered was intended as a solace to the king and as a warning perhaps a friendly warning to the colonies those who were most opposed to it in england may well have hoped that it might be accepted without too much straining in the general satisfaction caused by the repeal of the hated measure even franklin seemed to believe that the declaratory act would not cause much trouble in america the event denied the hope and indignation at the declaratory act outlasted in america the rejoicing over the subversion of grenville's policy nevertheless the rejoicing was very great on may sixteenth seventeen sixty six the public spirit of boston was stimulated by the distribution of a broadsheet headed glorious news this broadsheet announced the arrival of john hancock's brig harrison in six weeks and two days from london with the important tidings of the repeal of the stamp act the broadsheet painted a lively picture of the enthusiasm at westminster and the rejoicings in the city of london over the total repeal of the measure it told of the ships in the river displaying all their colors of illuminations and bonfires in many parts in short the rejoicings were as great as was ever known on any occasion this broadsheet printed for the benefit of the public ended in a rapture of delight it is impossible to express the joy the town is now in on receiving the above great glorious and important news the bells on all the churches were immediately set ringing and we hear the day for a general rejoicing will be the beginning of next week boston had every reason to rejoice to ring its bells and fly its flags and set poor debtors free from prison in honor of the occasion the colonies had stood together against the home government and had learned something of the strength of their union by the repeal of the stamp act but when the bells had stopped ringing and the flags were hauled down and the released debtors had ceased to congratulate themselves upon their newly recovered liberty boston and the other colonial cities found that their satisfaction was not untempered the broadsheet that had blazoned the repeal had also assured its readers that the acts of trade relating to america would be taken under consideration and all grievances removed the friends to america are very powerful and disposed to assist us to the best of their ability 
the friends to america were powerful but they fought against tremendous odds dullness and mediocrity a spite that was always stupid and a stupidity that was often spiteful an alliance of ignorance and arrogance were the forces against which they struggled in vain the acts of trade were to be enforced as rigidly as ever the declaratory act pompously asserted the unimpeachable prerogative of british majesty to make what laws it pleased for the colonies the good that had been done seemed small in comparison with the harm that might yet be done that in all probability would be done for the time more was to be feared from the viceroys of the provinces than from the home government mr secretary conway addressed a circular letter to the governors of the different colonies reproving the colonists indeed for the recent disturbances but with a measured mildness of reproof that seemed carefully calculated not to give needless offence or cause unnecessary irritation if by lenient persuasive methods conway wrote you can contribute to restore the peace and tranquillity to the provinces on which their welfare and happiness depend you will do a most acceptable and essential service to your country an appeal so suave advice so judicious did not seem the less prudent and humane because the secretary insisted upon the repression of violence and outrage and reminded those to whom his letter was addressed that if they needed aid in the maintenance of law and order they were to require it at the hands of the commanders of his majesty's land and naval forces in america if all the gentlemen to whom the secretary's circular was addressed had been as reasonable and as restrained in language as its writer things might even then have turned out very differently it was not to be expected and the colonists did not expect that outrage and violence were to go unchallenged and unpunished and it is probable that few even in massachusetts would have objected to the formal expression of thanks for firmness and zeal which was made by conway to the governor of that colony but the temperance that was possible to conway was impossible to bernard bernard was one of the worst of a long line of inappropriate colonial governors he was a hot-headed hot-hearted man who seemed to think that to play the part of a domineering blustering bully was to show discretion and discernment in the duties of his office he always acted under the conviction that he must always be in the right and every one else always in the wrong and he blazed up into fantastic rages at the slightest show of opposition as this was not the spirit in which to deal with the proud and independent men of massachusetts governor bernard passed the better part of his life in a passion and was forever quarrelling with his provincial legislature and forever complaining to the home government of his hard lot and of the mischievous mutinous set of fellows he had to deal with when bernard received the secretary's letters and the accompanying copies of the two bills that had been passed by the british parliament he hastened to make them known to the assembly of massachusetts but he made them known in a speech that was wholly lacking in either temperance or discretion had it been at once his desire and his duty to inflame his hearers against himself and the government which he represented he could hardly have chosen words more admirably adapted for the purpose with a wholly unchastened arrogance and a wholly ungoverned truculence the governor of the province lectured or rather hectored the gentlemen of the council and the gentlemen of the house of representatives after a fashion that would have seemed 
in questionable taste on the part of an old-fashioned pedagogue to a parcel of unruly schoolboys he was for bullying and blustering them into a better behaviour and he assured those who were willing to make amends and to promise to be good in the future that their past offences would be buried in a charitable oblivion too ready a forgetfulness of injuries hath been said to be my weakness bernard urged with strange ignorance however it is a failing which i had rather suffer by than be without the house of representatives replied to the reproofs of their governor in an address that was remarkable for the firmness with which it maintained its own position and the irony with which it reviewed the governor's pretensions to prove their independence of action they delayed the act of indemnity demanded by secretary conway for several months and then accompanied it with a general pardon to all persons who had been concerned in the riots provoked by the stamp act though this act was promptly disallowed by the home government on the ground that the power of pardon belonged exclusively to the crown it took effect nevertheless and added another to the grievances of bernard and of his backers in england the slowly widening breach between the american colonies and the mother country might even yet have been filled if it had been possible for the king to depend upon the services and listen to the advice of ministers whose good intentions and general good sense had the advantage of being served and indirectly inspired by the genius of burke but unhappily the fortunes of the party with whom he was allied were not long fated to be official fortunes after a year of honourable if somewhat colourless existence the rockingham administration came to an end there was no particular reason why it should come to an end but the king was weary of it if it had not gravely dissatisfied him it had afforded him no grave satisfaction an administration always seemed to george the third like a candle which he could illuminate or extinguish at his pleasure so he blew out the rockingham administration and turned to pitt for a new one in point of fact an administration without pitt was an impossibility the duke of grafton had resigned his place in the rockingham ministry because he believed it hopeless to go on without the adhesion of pitt and pitt would not adhere to the rockingham ministry now with a free hand he set to work to form one of the most amazing administrations that an age which knew many strange administrations can boast of the malady which had for so long martyrized the great statesman had afflicted him heavily of late his eccentricities had increased to such a degree that they could hardly be called merely eccentricities but though he suffered in mind and in body he was ready and even eager to return to power so long as that power was absolute by this time he had quarrelled with temple who had so often hindered him from resuming office and who was now as hostile to him as his brother george grenville had ever been temple in consequence found no place in the new administration the administration was especially designed to please the king a party had grown up in the state which was known by the title of the king's friends the king's friends had no political creed no political convictions no desire no ambition and no purpose save to please the king what the king wanted said they would say what the king wanted done they would do their votes were unquestionably and unhesitatingly at the king's command they did not indeed act from an invincible loyalty to the royal person it was the royal purse that ruled them 
the king was the fountain of patronage wealth and honors flowed from him and the wealth and the honors welded the king's friends together into a harmonious and formidable whole the king's friends found themselves well represented in a ministry that was otherwise as much a thing of shreds and patches as a harlequin's coat pitt had tried to make a chemical combination but he only succeeded in making a mixture that might at any time dissolve into its component parts it was composed of men of all parties and all principles the amiable conway and the unamiable grafton remained on from rockingham's ministry so did the duke of portland and lord bessborough so did saunders and keppel pitt did not forget his own followers he gave the great seal to lord camden who as justice pratt had liberated wilkes from unjustifiable arrest he made lord shelburne one of the secretaries of state the chancellorship of the exchequer was given to a politician with a passion for popularity that made him as steadfast as a weathercock charles townsend by this time pitt was no longer the great commoner the house of commons was to know him no more under the title of Earl of Chatham, he had entered the upper house. Such an elevation did not mean then, as it came later to mean, something little better than political extinction, but Pitt's elevation meant to him a loss of popularity as immediate as it was unexpected. Though he was no longer young, though he was racked in mind and body, though he sorely needed the repose that he might hope to find in the upper house, he was assailed with as much fury of vituperation as if he had betrayed the state. A country that was preparing to rejoice at his return to power lashed itself into a fury of indignation at his exaltation to the peerage. In the twinkling of an eye, men who had been devoted yesterday to Pitt were prepared to believe every evil of Chatham. His rule began in storm and gloom, and gloomy and stormy it remained. The first act of his administration roused the fiercest controversy. A bad harvest had raised the price of food almost to famine height. Chatham took the bold step of laying an embargo on the exportation of grain. The noise of the debates over this act had hardly died away when Pitt's malady again overmastered him, and once more he disappeared from public life into mysterious melancholy silence and seclusion. It was an unhappy hour for the country, which deprived it of the services of Chatham, and left the helm of state in the hands of Charles Townsend. Charles Townsend was the erratic son of a singularly erratic mother. The beautiful Audrey Harrison married the third Marquis Townsend, and then separated from him to carry her beauty, her insolence, and her wit through an amazed and amused society. It was one of her eccentricities to change her name Audrey to Ethelfrida. Another was to fancy herself and to proclaim herself to be very much in love with the unhappy Lord Kilmarnock. She attended the trial persistently, waited under his windows, quarrelled with Selwyn for daring to jest about the execution, no very happy theme for wit, and was all for adopting a little boy whom some of the officials of the tower had palmed off upon her as Kilmarnock's son. 
Walpole liked her, delighted in her witty, stinging sayings. She was always entertaining, always alarming, always ready to say or do anything that came into her mind. She lived a whimsical, spiteful, sprightly oddity to be eighty-seven years of age. Charles Townsend was her second son, and Charles Townsend was in many ways as whimsical as his mother. He had a ready wit, a dexterity and epigram, an astonishing facility of speech, and a very great appreciation of his own power of turning friends or foes into ridicule. It is told of him that once in his youth, when a student at Leiden, he suffered from his readiness to jest at the expense of another. At a merry supper-party he plied one of the guests, a seemingly unconscious, stolid Scotsman named Johnstone, with sneers and sarcasms, which the Scotsman seemed to disregard or take in good part. On the next morning, however, Townsend's victim, enlightened by some friend as to the way in which he had been made a butt of, became belligerent, and sent Townsend a challenge. Various opinions have been expressed of Townsend's action in the matter. He has been applauded for good sense. He has been reproached for cowardice. Certainly Townsend did not, would not fight his challenger. It required a great deal of good sense to decline a duel in those days, and Townsend did decline the duel. He apologized to his slow-witted but stubborn-purposed opponent with a profusion of apology which some of his friends thought to be excessive. In these days we should consider Townsend's refusal to fight a duel merely as an unimportant proof of his common sense. But in the last century, in the society in which Townsend moved, and on the continent, such a refusal suggested the possession of a degree of common sense that was far from ordinary, that was indeed extraordinary. Townsend's tact, wit, and good spirits carried him through the scrape somehow. He made the rounds of Leiden with his would-be adversary, calling in turn upon each of his many friends, and obtaining from each in the presence of his companion the assurance that Townsend had never been known to speak of Johnstone slightingly or discourteously behind his back. The episode, trivial in itself, gains a kind of gravity by the illustration it affords of Townsend's character— all through Townsend's short career, the impossibility of restraining an incorrigible tongue, and the unreadiness to follow out the course of action to which his words would seem to have committed him, were the distinguishing marks of Townsend's political existence. No man, no party, nor no friend could count on the unflinching services of Townsend. His conduct was as irresponsible as his eloquence was dazzling, in his twenty years of public life he had but one purpose, to please and to be praised, and to gain those ends he sacrificed consistency and discretion with a light heart. The beauty of his person and the fluent splendor of his speech went far toward the attainment of an ambition which was always frustrated by a fatal levity. In the fine phrase of Burke, he was a candidate for contradictory honors, and his great aim was to make those agree in admiration of him who never agreed in anything else. It has been given to few men to desire fame more ardently and to attain it more disastrously than Charles Townsend. If we may estimate the man by the praises of his greatest contemporary, no one better deserved a fairer fortune than fate allotted to him. 
Burke spoke of Townsend as the delight and ornament of the House of Commons, and the charm of every private society which he honoured with his presence. Though his passion for fame might be immoderate, it was at least a passion which is the instinct of all great souls. While Burke could rhapsodise over Townsend's pointed and finished wit, his refined exquisite and penetrating judgment, his skill and power in statement, his excellence in luminous explanation, Walpole was no less enthusiastic in an estimate that contrasted Townsend with Burke. According to Walpole, Townsend, who studied nothing with accuracy or attention, had parts that embraced all knowledge, with such quickness that he seemed to create knowledge instead of seeking for it. Ready as Walpole admits Burke's wit to have been, he declares that it appeared artificial when set by that of Townsend, which was so abundant in him that it seemed a loss of time to think. Townsend's utterances had always the fascinating effervescence of spontaneity, while even Burke's extempore utterances were so pointed and artfully arranged that they wore the appearance of study and preparation. This brilliant, resplendent creature, in every respect the opposite to George Grenville, showy where Grenville was solid, fluent where he was formal, glittering and even glowing where he was sober or sombre, fascinating where he was repellent, gracious where he was sullen, and polished where he was rude, was nevertheless destined to share Grenville's hateful task and Grenville's deserved condemnation. Such enthusiasm as Parliament had permitted itself to show over the repeal of Grenville's Stamp Act had long flickered out. The colonists were regarded with more disfavor than ever by a majority that raged against their ingratitude and bitterly repented the repeal of the act. Townsend's passion for popularity forced him into the fatal blunder of his life. He was indeed, as Burke said, the spoiled child of the House of Commons, never thinking, acting, or speaking, but with a view to its judgment and adapting himself daily to its disposition, and adjusting himself before it, as before a looking-glass. The looking-glass showed him a member of a ministry that was unpopular because it refused to tax America. He resolved that the looking-glass should show him a member of a ministry popular because it was resolved to tax America. His hunger and thirst for popularity, his passion for fame, were leading him into strange ways indeed. He was to leave after him an enduring name but enduring for reasons that would have broken his bright spirit if he could have realized them. The shameful folly of George Grenville was the shameful folly of Charles Townsend. His name stands above Grenville's in the role of those who in that disastrous time did so much to lower the honor and lessen the empire of England. It became plain to Townsend that the parliamentary majority regretted the repeal of the Stamp Act and resented the theory that America should not be taxed. Townsend resolved that revenue could and should be raised out of America. He introduced a bill imposing a tax on glass, paper, and tea upon the American colonies. Though the amount to be raised was not large, no more than 40,000 pounds, and though it was proposed that the whole of the sum should be spent in America, it was as mischievous in its result as if it had been more malevolently aimed. Townsend himself did not live long enough to learn the unhappy consequences of his folly. 
a neglected fever proved fatal to him in the September of 1767, in the forty-third year of his age. Walpole lamented him with an ironical appreciation. Charles Townsend is dead. All those parts and fire are extinguished. Those volatile salts are evaporated. That first eloquence of the world is dumb. That duplicity is fixed. That cowardice terminated heroically. He joked on death as naturally as he used to do on the living, and not with the affectation of philosophers who wind up their works with sayings which they hope to have remembered. Townsend had passed away, but his policy remained a fatal legacy to the country. Townsend was immediately succeeded in the Chancellorship of the Exchequer by a young politician who had been for some years in Parliament, and had held several offices without conspicuously distinguishing himself. When Lord North entered the House of Commons as member for Banbury, his record was that of any intelligent young nobleman of his time. He had written pleasing Latin love poems at Eton, he had been to Oxford, he had studied at Leipzig. George Grenville saw great promise in North. He even predicted that if he did not relax in his political pursuits, he was very likely to become Prime Minister. Unhappily for his country, North did not relax in his political pursuits. There was an ironic fitness in the fact that North should be admired by Grenville and should succeed to Townsend, for no man was better fitted to carry on the fatal policy of the two men who had outraged the American colonies by the Stamp Act and the tax on tea. End of section 10